Well, today we begin our series, Finding Freedom. And I don't know exactly what comes to your mind when you hear the words freedom or, or our series title, Finding Freedom. And I would imagine that as many minds as there are out and as many set of ears as there are listening and watching today, that's how many different definitions there are when it comes to freedom. And one kind of interesting aspect about that is that as life goes, as, as, as seasons go, as, as we grow older, our definition and, our, and, and what freedom looks like changes depending on your stage or your season of life. See, freedom has a very specific look when you're in high school, a very different look and feel when you're in college, a very different look when you're a parent of young children, and a very different look when you're an empty nester. Freedom looks different at different stages of life. But regardless of, of whatever your definition looks like, chances are that your definition of freedom includes being free from something or someone. Let me give a couple examples of this. When you're in high school, what do you want freedom from? Your parents. Obviously, when you're in high school, you just want the freedom from your parents telling you what to do, where to go, when to be places. You want freedom from that. When you're in college, what do you want freedom from? It's a little bit, a little bit more tricky to figure out, but maybe it's freedom from bills, freedom from loans, freedom from responsibilities. Or if you're, if you're a college guy, freedom from showering. And, and when you sit down next to us, we all get that you don't like showering. We, we, we get that. It's, it's a great thing. If you have young children, if you're, if you're a parent and, has, and have a young child, what do you want freedom from? your young child, absolutely. Not for a day, not, not like not forever, but for a day or, or for a night or for a little stretch of a pandemic, like that's what you want freedom from. You want freedom from your children. Or uh, if you own your own company, what do you want freedom from? Maybe taxes, maybe paperwork, maybe bad employees, some of these things that make life a little more difficult. If you've lived through 2020 and the start of 2021, what do you want freedom from? Masks, right? We all we all want to we all want to ditch the mask. We'd all prefer to ditch the mask and, and kind of move forward with life without without a mask. See, we all desire freedom from things or people that we believe limit our ability to do what we want, when we want, where we want, with whom we want. And when someone or something limits your ability to choose, your ability to set to set your own course, we feel restrained and we are not fans of being restrained. So we can define freedom this way. Here's how I would like to define freedom for, for the beginning of this series. Freedom is the ability to make your own choices and direct your own future. And on some level, that, that's what we all want, isn't it? That's what, that's what we all desire. That's what we're all after, isn't it? That, that we want to make our own choices and we want to direct our own future. And we don't want anything or anyone telling us where to go, what to do, or whom we can do things with. Now, what makes this idea really interesting, though, is that when you think about it, like when you have freedom or when you get freedom or when you actually find a little bit of freedom, isn't it true that all of us, when we get free, when we actually can do whatever we want, go wherever we want, spend our time however we want, when we get freedom, we have this tendency that we often use our freedom to lose our freedom. We use our freedom to lose our freedom. Isn't that true? That part of the reason that we rarely feel freedom in our life is because of what we do and what we choose when we actually have some freedom. That when you get freedom or when I get freedom, we have this tendency to turn around and give our freedom away. See, that's why you have a past that you're not proud of. That when you were doing what you wanted to do and not listening to anyone else and no one told you how you were going to live your life, you lived your life in a way that to this day it fills you with regret. That's why some of us have major debts that when you had the freedom to do whatever you wanted to do with your money and you weren't going to listen to anyone else, you were going to listen to advice, you certainly weren't going to listen to God when it comes to money, that you spent all of the money. You spent money that you didn't have. You spent money that you still don't have. And because you weren't going to listen to anyone and you had freedom, 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 you could do whatever you wanted, you spent all the money and you're still working on paying those things off. 
Let's be honest, some of the things that, that, that uh, we mentioned above, there are things that we want to be free of that we chose in the first place. If you have young children that you want to be free of, no one forced you to have a kid. I mean, no, like, you know, your, your parents you know, had pressure to, to be a grandkid, but you chose to have a child, most of us. If you own a business and you wish that you could be free of paperwork and taxes, no one forced you to start your own business. If you're in college and you wish that you could be free of bills and loans, no one forced you to go to college. Now, you might argue, no, 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 my parents forced me to go to college. They told me that one way or another, I was moving out of the house, so it was the street or the college, and so I chose the university so that I didn't have to live on the street. My parents actually, okay, fair. That might have actually happened, that you might actually have that thing. But all of the, so many of the things that we act like we want to be free of are things that we chose. Or, or let's be honest, let's talk about if you have an addiction that you're facing down, that you're trying to face down, that you're trying to overcome. That addiction most likely began as you saying, I'm going to be free and I'm going to do whatever I want. Maybe it's that you started using something or you started drinking something or you started online shopping or online gambling or looking at porn because no one was going to tell you what you could or you couldn't do. And it was a way to show your freedom and then you couldn't stop and you still can. You did it. You started it because you were free and you had freedom. And now you're not so free. And so here's this weird tension that we have. We all want freedom, and we're all pretty bad at using freedom once we get it. We all want freedom, and we're all pretty bad at using freedom once we get it. So here's the question. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Like, do we just accept the fact that, it's kind of, it, that there's this kind of never-ending cycle where we get freedom, and then we give it away? We get some freedom, then we give it away. We finally get some freedom. We finally feel some freedom, and then we pretty quickly give it away with our choices and our actions. Do we accept the fact that there's this never-ending cycle, or is there a way to learn to find real freedom and actually keep it and actually live in freedom and maintain it and use it well and not just give it away? Not surprisingly, it shouldn't surprise anyone that I, that I believe there is a way to find freedom, that God has a way for every single one of us to not only find freedom, but also want to show us and lead us toward a life that stays free and uses our freedom well. And I think one of the best examples of this, is of, of finding freedom and learning how to use it well, is actually found in the story of the Exodus. It's found among a group of people who literally had never tasted freedom in their lifetime or, or, in, or in generation after generation after generation of their lifetime or their nation's history. See, and, and, and then through a flurry of God's activity, they are given freedom and they have to learn to use well something that they had never known. And so the next few weeks, we are going to dive right into the story of the Exodus to learn how God led his people to find freedom. Now, the story of the, of the Exodus doesn't actually begin in the book of Exodus. It actually begins about 400 years earlier with the large in, in the book of, at the end of the book of Genesis with the large family of Israel coming to live in Egypt. Then they're re reunited with a long-lost son and brother named Joseph, who is the second command in all of Egypt because of some circumstances and some situations that God had providently guided, that he was second in command in the nation of Egypt. And because of his influence and their family relationships and God's guiding hand, God used that situation to provide and protect for this chosen family during a time of intense famine throughout the ancient Middle East. Genesis ends with everyone happy living in Egypt with Pharaoh pleased that Joseph's family has come and is living among his people. That's how Genesis ends. And then for, for over the course of the next hundred, hundreds and hundreds of years, some different things happen. And then the book of Exodus starts with an ominous tone. 
We're told that a number of years later, quote, a Pharaoh rose to power who did not know Joseph and did not care about the relationship with the Israelite people. In fact, he did not want a relationship with them. He viewed them as a threat to his own power. That because of a massive burst of parental fertility among the Israelites, over the decades, the family of Israel had blossomed into a small nation of Israel living within another nation. They were no longer a an extended family, they had grown immensely to become a small nation. And so this Pharaoh worried that this nation could rise up against him and decided to enslave the people of Israel. And for whatever reason, we are not told this, they went along with it. They went along with it, which is a good reminder that sometimes you can find yourself enslaved over time in a way that you did not see coming. We don't know if there was a series of agreements of like, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, and then one day they found themselves enslaved. We just know that over the course of time, they found themselves enslaved by the nation of Israel or nation of Egypt. They were enslaved and put to task as the massive workforce behind the pyramids and vast projects throughout Egypt. When pharaohs over the years changed their mind about where they wanted their capital cities to be and wanted new capital cities to be built, it is widely believed that the Israelites formed major parts, if not the whole, of the slave labor force that built these capital cities. That was their existence for over 300 years. And then, and then came a new pharaoh, Over the years, despite the heavy labor, the Israelites continued to multiply and be incredibly fertile to the point where Pharaoh was concerned that they had too many slaves. Not too many Israelites, they had too many slaves. That if all the slaves realized how many of them there were, they would rise up in revolt and they would take over Egypt. And so, the, so he made a new law that Israel, Israelite midwives were to kill any Israelite baby boys before their mothers could ever hold them. We're gonna, in other words, we're going to control the population by snuffing out the Israelite boys for a few years. We're going to control this population. We're going to slow down the growth among these people. And so here's what happens. So the Israelite midwives, they thought, well, we're going to be really, really, really sneaky. We're going to, they, they sneakily refused to do this. And when Pharaoh was confronted them about the fact that they weren't killing these baby boys, they were like, hey, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you don't understand. These women are not like the Egyptian women. They give birth so fast that before we can even get there, the children are born and their mothers have them. And so, you know, you told us that we we're supposed to kill them before their mothers hold them. Sorry, we missed that. We missed that boat. They thought they foiled Pharaoh. Pharaoh's plan. So Pharaoh changed the law. Instead of it being the responsibility of the Israelites to kill their own, all Egyptians were deputized to kill any and all Israelite baby boys. Pharaoh basically said, that's cool. If you won't take care of of that problem, we will be happy to. Imagine, imagine this fear. Imagine the terror of a society where one group of people feels empowered to literally rip children out of their mother's arms and kill children right in front of of their mothers. This is the law according to Pharaoh. Imagine the terror as a family knowing that if you get pregnant, that very scenario could play out right in front of your eyes. I mean, just imagine living like that. For hundreds of years, there is no freedom. There is only slavery. There is only bondage. There is only work. There is only rules made by someone else. There is only your life being told exactly what to do, where to go, when to be there, and who you can do things with. For hundreds of years, no freedom. If someone were to actually talk to you about freedom and say, well, but don't you want to be free? You would say, I have no idea what you're talking about. You want some sort of rescue from this horrible situation, but it's been hundreds of years since there was any noticeable action on the part of the God that you've heard a bunch of stories about. 
And on top of all of that, the most powerful man in the world is literally attempting to systematically wipe your people out by wiping your children out, and you have no recourse or resources to fight back. You would feel helpless, and so would I. And then, as if this wasn't enough, to talk about it on a personal level, one day after this law is announced, a mother becomes pregnant with what we know to be her third child. And sure enough, after nine months, she gives birth to a baby boy. And she devises a plan to keep this baby boy hidden and silent for as long as possible. And the plan worked for three months. But after three months, she knew that she could no longer hide her child. So she did her best to give her son a chance because sometimes as a parent, that's all you can do. You can do your best to give your your child a chance. So she does her best to give her child a chance. And we don't know if there was like scouting ahead of what happened, but we know that she took her baby boy, set him in a basket, set him in the Nile River, and, 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 and said, this is the best chance you have. If you stay with me, I ha- someone will kill you. I'm going to set you in a river. She sends her older, her older daughter to, to, to walk by the river, keep an eye on the basket. And sure enough, this baby's older sister, Miriam, keeps an eye on the basket all the way until it gets to the palace. And she's thinking, oh no, it's literally going to the place where the law has been made of what is going to happen to my baby brother. And when she gets the, and when the basket gets there and she's watching, she sees that Pharaoh's own daughter is out, is out bathing one day and happens to notice that there's a basket where noises are coming from. So she goes to the basket, she opens the basket, sees this baby boy, sees this Hebrew baby boy, knows exactly where this baby boy came from or exactly who this baby boy is and picks up the baby boy and makes the decision to defy her father's orders and to adopt this child as her own. And then she notices this little girl standing watching in the reeds, and she says, hey, 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 would you be willing to go find a Hebrew mother that can nurse this child until, un- until he's ready to eat on his own? And so she says, yes, I can go do that for you. She goes, and, and Moses' own mother is actually brought to the palace to care for her child. Moses then was raised in the palace, raised like Egyptian royalty, had the finest education available in the world at the time. He was fed and raised to be strong and to fight well. He had wealth at his disposal. He had servants available at the snap of his fingers. He had quite literally the best that the world had to offer available to him at any moment. But as he grew older, he began to identify as a Hebrew, to identify as an Israelite. He began to turn his back on the comforts of the palace and began to care more and more for his enslaved relatives. And one day, while he was out investigating the conditions of, of this, uh, the, the working conditions of the Israelite people, he stumbled onto a situation that he couldn't ignore. He stumbled onto an Egyptian slave master who was mercilessly beating a, an Israelite slave. And in his righteous anger, he took the man by his hands. We don't know exactly what happened, but we know the Egyptian slave master ended up dead on the ground. And we know that other Egyptian slave masters saw it happen. And in this moment, Moses knew that this was an action that there was no coming back from. Like, we don't know if there was tension in the palace ahead of time of, over, over the fact that he was starting to you know, care more and more and more about what was going on among the Hebrew people. But we know that this action, him killing an Egyptian slave master, was something that he could not come back from. If Pharaoh ever saw him again, Pharaoh would kill him on sight. So he had to run for his life. So he did. He ran to a distant territory known as Midian, which is about 180 miles away from Egypt's capital. And, and, and there he met an important man named Jethro, the priest of, for an important city known as Median, a man who owned 
also, who on top of being a priest, he owned a significant herd of sheep. He was a wealthy man. He was a wealthy priest. After a few years of working for Jethro, Moses married his daughter because why not marry the boss's daughter? He married his da- Jethro's daughter and he was the lead shepherd for Jethro's herd, just like life had, just like he had grown up dreaming of being. He grew up in a palace and now, woo, I'm the lead shepherd out in a country that I'm not from among people that I, that I don't belong with. This is, this is where we find Moses. This is the condition of the Israelites. So two chapters into the book of Exodus, we have a very, very, very bleak scenario. You have a nation who needs freedom, who needs rescue. We have a nation of people who needs a God to come save them, but they are not sure that God even exists because all they have are a few stories from hundreds of years ago. We have families devastated by cruel and vindictive laws. Uh, then we have Moses. Then we have, then we have Moses. Then we have Moses. A man who had as much freedom as any person in the ancient world could possibly have, and he blew it all up. He's a man who believed he would never see his family again. He's a man who has, who has to conceal his identity and past wherever he goes so that no one would rat him out to the most powerful man in the world. And oh, by the way, he's a man who was not falsely accused. He actually very literally is carrying the guilt and shame of having taken a man's life with his own hands. If ever there was a collection of people who needed help finding freedom, this is it. This is the group of people. And then God begins to move. And then things begin to happen. And because God begins to move, things begin to change. Here's what we're told in Exodus chapter 3. We're told this. One day, one day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. Now, let me just pause here for a second. In case you have ever heard a story like this and thought, see, this is what makes believing so, so difficult. This is what makes, makes faith so difficult. Like, I have to believe that there was actually a bush that was on fire and it didn't burn up. Like, a burning bush. Like, are you kidding? Like, come on. Like, like leave that alone. Like, I can't believe in stories with, like, miracles and stuff like that where there was a burning bush. But I, like, like I, I get that. But let me tell you a little, a little, little theory that's out there. There's, there's, there's the theory that, that God works through things in nature, that there are natural explanations for things that God decided to use. In this instance, there is a, a burning bush theory. There's the theory that Mount Sinai, that Mount Sinai in the middle of the Arabian desert, in the Arabian highlands, was a volcano, was, was actually an ancient volcano. And so on this mountain that was incredibly fertile, which is, by the way is why Moses would have led his sheep there, because on the fertile lands of, of, an, of a dormant volcano, there would be incredibly fertile soil for green greenery to grow, so the sheep would want to be there. That's kind of an interesting detail. There's a theory that this mountain was actually a, a dormant volcano, and because of that, there was what's called volcanic venting, volcanic venting, which is the release of gas from small holes in the molten magma of volcanic, of a volcanic mountain. On top of that, frequently around many of these mountains, there's a plant called acacia sale, which burns in a way like charcoal, where the branches glow brightly and for an extended period of time, rather than turning to ash. And it looks as if the fire is coming from within. So imagine this tree that, you know, gets, whether it's struck by lightning or whether God lit a match or whatever, 
this tree that is burning from within is, is, was close to a volcanic vent. This tree, there, it's entirely possible, and it's been observed in, in the last couple hundred years that these types of things actually happen, that there are these volcanic vents, and there are these types of plants which look like they are glowing from, from inside. And it's been observed many, many, many times. Now, let me ask you a question. Does this make it less miraculous? Nope. God uses the natural world to get our attention to speak in supernatural ways. Story goes on in verse 4. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. And so, so, so God uses the natural world to get Moses' attention. And when he realizes that he has Moses' attention, God speaks to Moses. And this is a point worth paying attention to. When someone finds real freedom, when anyone finds real freedom, God always makes the first move. When anyone finds real freedom, God always makes the first move. While Moses has become content to live out his days in Midian, to content to live out his days tending sheep, live out his days with some sense of normality and peace, even if it's uneasy, God breaks the silence without requiring anything of Moses, without requiring anything of the Israelite nation, before there is a law, before before there is any awareness of a sacrificial system, God moves toward Moses. God makes the first move. And if you've ever wondered about this, this is what God always does. This is who God is. God is the God who moves first. God is the God who moves first. God has always moves toward his people first. This is actually what God did for you with Jesus. Before you realized your need of a Savior, God provided one. Before you were born and you chose sin and you looked up in your brokenness, God made available the solution to your greatest issue. God always makes the, the first move to help his people find freedom. And this leads us towards kind of the, the underlying theme of this, of this series. We never find freedom on our own. We follow God to the freedom that he has won for us. We, de we never find freedom on our own, not, 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 not once, not twice. We never find freedom on our own. We follow God to the freedom that he has won for us. God always makes the first move. God, through Jesus, has won our freedom, has won your freedom, has won my freedom. It has already been won. And then we have a choice. Will we follow God and trust his, that his ways are best and follow him to experience the freedom that he has won for us and made available for you and made available for me and made available for every single one of us? See, here's the thing. You cannot in your own effort, you cannot and you will not find freedom. You, you just won't. You never will. In all of your effort, in all of your reading, in all of your trying to do the wise thing, you may be a little bit wiser, you may be a little more educated, but you will never Find freedom for yourself. Freedom is only found in God. We don't find freedom on our own. God has won freedom and he gives it to us. He makes the first move and he made the first move. That's what God does. That's who God is. That's why you don't find freedom anywhere else besides Jesus Christ. Freedom is, only comes from the hand of our heavenly father through Jesus Christ. You cannot and you will not find freedom, but God has won it for you. And he has made the first move on your behalf. Story goes on and tells us this, starting in the end of verse 4. Here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. And then God decides to introduce himself. I thought the, like there might be a little introduction. He said, I am God. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, hey, Moses, I'm the God that you grew up hearing about. 
I'm the, I'm the God that your people have believed in, even though I haven't done much on their behalf in a while. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard the cries of their distress. Repeat that. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So, so I have come down to rescue them. I have heard, so I've come to rescue. I've come to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. Now, that's where we're going to stop today. And, and I know that might seem like a, a little bit of an odd place to stop, but there's a powerful line in there. There's a powerful line in there that I think would be really easy to gloss over. But as we talk about freedom, as we talk about finding and living in freedom, this is actually really important. See, God let Moses know, I have heard the cries. I have heard the cries. Wherever you are, would you say or would you type in the, in the bar, I have heard the cries. I have heard the cries. Meaning, these people who weren't even sure and had no reason to believe there was a God who even cared about them, who was worth praying, who actually had been told by the Egyptian slave masters that there was no God who was hearing their prayers. These people continued to pray to their God, believing that if their God heard them, their God would do something about it. These people continued to pray. In their efforts to find freedom, they prayed to their God, who they believed might be the only answer and the only one who could provide and bring their freedom. And God heard. So God responded. God heard. So God responded. And friends, that is the entire ballgame. That's the entire ballgame. See, in this moment, what we find out is that the war was won before the fighting began. The war was over. The war was won before the fighting even began because God hears the prayers of his people. See, right then and right there, at, their, at that very moment, God announces what he's going to do and the game is over for the Egyptians. The freedom is won for the Israelites and a new future is destined for Moses. God heard the prayers, game over. Everything that happens after that in the story of the Egyptians, everything that happens in the story of the Israelites, everything that happens in the crossing of the Red Sea and in the 10 plagues and the meeting of God at Mount Sinai, everything else after that is window dressing on the fact that God heard, so God moved, game over. The war was won before the fighting ever began because God's people prayed. And I just want to pause at this point in the story and present this idea that I think has way more to do with finding freedom and living in freedom than we ever realize. Here's the principle. We fight battles in the spiritual before you fight in the physical. You fight battles in the spiritual before you fight in the physical, before you even attempt to fight in the physical, before you try to win the battles of today, before you win the battles of today, you fight in the spiritual. You fight the battles in the spiritual through prayer. See, see, Mark Batterson has this amazing quote. Mark Batterson is pastor in Washington, D.C. of an amazing church. He said this in a, in a recent book, that prayer is the difference between the best that we can do and the best God can do. Prayer is the difference between the best that we can do and the best God can do. So before we try to fight a battle in the physical, before we try to go say, Pharaoh, you got to set my people free. Before we go and say, hey, Pharaoh, there's going to be some plagues that come on your land. Before we go to Pharaoh and say, hey, we want to go out to the, to the wilderness to worship. Before we do any of that, before we try to do anything in the physical, the people prayed, so the war was won. 
And this is how God works. That before you try to do anything in your own power, you pray. Before you try to post your complaining opinion on Facebook, pray. Before you try to fix your marriage by applying principles of some book that you read, pray. Before you try to change another person with your arguing and your yelling and whatever else you might try to do, pray. Before you try to fix that friendship that's gone sideways, pray. Before you chew out your kids' teacher, pray. Before you chew out your kids, Pray before you try to find freedom for yourself or your family in your own strength. Pray that before we do anything else, we go to our heavenly Father in prayer. We fight the battles in the spiritual before we ever try to fight the battles in the physical world. Here's why. When you pray, you take your requests and your energy to the only one who has the power to do anything for you. You take your, 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 your energy and your request and everything that you're worried about and your anxiety and your fear, and you take it to the one person who actually can do something about it. That's why we fight in the spiritual before we try to fight in the physical. As Paul wrote in the New Testament, we don't fight against flesh and blood. Your battles that you're trying to fight, that the things that we think are, are, are physical issues, we don't fight flesh and blood, but we fight powers and principalities. And you can't do that in the physical. You do that through prayer. He says, we don't wage war with the weapons of this world. We win the battle by bringing the battle to our heavenly father who hears our prayers and has the power to meet our needs. We fight in the spiritual before we ever attempt to fight a battle in the physical. So we pray. So we pray. So as you, as you think about finding freedom, as you, as you start 2021, as we talk about finding freedom this year, as you find, talk about finding freedom in your, in your family or finding freedom in your finances or finding freedom in, in, your, in your relationships and in your friendships and in, in whatever area or if you're trying to overcome an addiction, as we talk about finding freedom, may I just suggest that maybe, 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 maybe before we do anything else, before we strike out in, in, in our own efforts or in our own strength or in our, our own anything, maybe the best step that we can take in finding freedom is to become people of prayer who take everything to God, who take everything to our Heavenly Father, who place every request, every anxiety, every worry into the hands of our Heavenly Father, knowing that when God hears our prayers, the battle is won before our fighting ever begun. That that's who God is, that that's how much He cares about us, and that He is strong enough to actually do stuff and do something about every need that we'll ever have. So on that note, let me just give you three ideas when it comes to prayer. Would you pray today like you did on your most desperate and your most dependent day? What if you prayed today? What if I prayed today? What if, we, what if as a church, we just simply prayed every day this week like you do on your most desperate and your most dependent day? See, there was a day, every single one of us, there was a day, and maybe it's today, there was a day that you were absolutely desperate for God to do something on, on, on your behalf. And on that day, oh boy, did you pray. Oh boy, did you pray. We're like, oh God, I just need you to come through with this. There's an urgency. There's like, I need you to do something today. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray. And on that day we pray, but so many of us, we get to days where we feel comfortable, where we feel like most things in life are going the way we hope they go. And we forget to pray because there is no urgency. See, I know I'm guilty of this, that some days I urgently need God and I pray big. And other days I don't feel like I desperately need him. And on those days, I don't pray as big. But let me just ask this question. What would happen? What, what might happen 
If you prayed every single day, like it was your most desperate, like your most dependent day, like the day that you needed God the most was every single day. What if you decided that you're going to pray and fight for your kids like you prayed and prayed for God to give you a child? What if you pray and fight today for your spouse today like you prayed for God to give you a spouse on your most desperate single days? What if you would pray and fight for your mental health on a good day like you do on your worst day? What if you pray and fight for your finances on a normal day like you do on your God needs to show up days? What if every single one of us decided that for this week, we're just going to simply pray as if we are absolutely desperate? Because let me tell you something about you. You are. If God doesn't show up every single day, you, you might, you're, you're desperate. You will find yourself in a place of being desperate and absolutely dependent on God. What if you woke up every single day knowing I am absolutely dependent on God. I'm desperate for God to show up in my life. And so I'm going to pray today like that's true because it is. Here's a second idea. What if you prayed today like your relationship with God depends on it? What if you prayed today like your relationship with God depends on your prayers? Let me tell you something that's true about you and true about me our relationship with God is dependent on our prayers. It is. More than I've ever known, I know that our relationship with God, that my relationship with God is dependent on prayer. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to the thing that has them. You must get close to the one who has them. See, if you desire to grow in your relationship with, with God and your trust in God, you have to stay close to the one who cares more about your relationship with him than you do. You have to stay close to the one who wants your relationship with him to grow. You have to be close to God if you want to grow close to God. If you, if you want to grow closer to God, you have to spend time in his presence. You have to spend time talking with him. There is no such thing as a relationship that grows without communication. And while that's true in the, in the physical world with our relationships, with our, our family members and our friends, it's true with God as well. Your relationship with God will not grow without communication. And that's what prayer is. And that's what prayer is for. That your relationship with God will never grow without communication with Him. So He's given us the gift and the opportunity to have communication with Him through prayer. Our relationship with God grows through prayer. Our relationship with God exists through prayer. That your relationship with God depends on your prayer. So what if you prayed today? And what if you prayed every day this week as if your relationship with God depends on your prayer? And one final thing, what if you listen today like you're lost and desperately in need of direction? Can I tell you something about yourself? That's true about you. You are hopelessly lost and you are desperately in need of direction. And God wants to speak to you as much as he wants to hear from you. God wants to speak to you and give you direction and give you clarity and point the way just as much as he wants to hear your requests. That God wants to hear from you, absolutely wants to hear from you, but he also wants to speak to you. And what if you listen today to God like you are desperately in need of direction? You are. That when you choose your own way, we always end up lost. We always end up hurting. We always end up broken. What if you decide, hey, God, before I get broken and before I get lost and before I end up in a ditch, what if I decide that I'm going to listen for your direction on my good day the same way I would as if I'm in the middle of the, as if I'm in the bottom of the barrel at the bottom of the, of the ditch? What if I decide I'm going to listen to you as if I'm already there? What if I'm going to listen to you because I don't want to end up there? What if you listen today like you were desperately in need of direction. 
Like if you don't get God's direction for today, you're dead in the water and you're hopelessly lost. I've got news for you. Without God's direction, without God leading the way, you are dead in the water and you are hopelessly lost. So why don't you listen to him like that's true? Why don't you take five minutes or 10 minutes of your, of your, of your prayer time, or if it's one minute, and simply say, God, for this minute, for this five minutes, for this 10 minutes, for this half hour, I just want to listen to you because I need your direction for today. I need your direction for the choices that will come today. Help me to hear your voice so when I'm in the moment and I need to know your voice and I need to know your direction, I will recognize what you're speaking, what you're saying. See, here's the, here's the cool part about this. God moves when his people pray. God moves when his people pray. That's just, that's just plain true. It was true at, X, at, at Mount Sinai. It was true in ancient Egypt. It was true in ancient Israel. And it's still true today. God moves when his people pray. And so here's something that we're going to do. For the next seven days, often at the beginning of a year, we, we take 21 days or a certain time period, and we say this very line that we're going to win the battles in the spiritual before we ever try to fight them in the physical. And, and some of you have noticed that this year we didn't do that at the very beginning of the year. We didn't do it at the beginning of the year because we wanted to take some time around this message and launch this correctly because there is something powerful that happens when we pray. So right now, we're going to begin seven days of prayer. And if you want to join us in this, you can join us in prayer and fasting. And we're going to believe that God is going to do some incredible things as we pray and fast. And so we're going to post a, a link and we're going to have posts every single day this week with what we're praying for and what we're believing God to do and how we want God to move and how we believe that God wants to move in our city, in our church, in the world. We're going to pray for some specific things because we believe that God moves when his people pray. God comes close when his people pray. God shapes the world as his people pray. God helps us find freedom as we pray. God does the difference between what we can do with our best and what he can do with his best when we pray. God helps us find freedom and helps us live in freedom as we pray. So let's win the battles in the spiritual before we ever try to fight in the physical. Let's fight hard in the physical. That's not, not saying we shouldn't you know, actively be involved, but let's fight in the spiritual before we try to fight in the physical. And let's watch as God shows his strength, his wisdom, his grace, his power at work on our behalf. Let me pray for you. Right now in this moment, for some of you, there's, there's a moment where this is the time to begin your relationship with God, to take the second move, that God made the first move towards you when he, when he sent Jesus to come to the earth, to die on a cross, to raise from the dead. This, that's the first move. God has made the first move in you finding freedom. And today might just be a moment for some of you to take the second step to take the step back in God's direction. And if you want to do that, today is a great day to place your trust in Jesus Christ and to begin a relationship with him. If you'd like to do that today, we have a link that we're posting in the, in the chat and in the comments right now where you can let us know that you are taking a step to begin a relationship with your heavenly father. And I would just encourage you as we pray, would you pray to your heavenly father and let him know that you are coming in his direction and you're accepting the gift of Jesus that he has given to you, that you need a savior and he has provided one and you're accepting the savior that he's provided. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you hear the prayers of your people. God, thank you that while, while people were looking freedom for freedom and trying to find freedom and trying to discover freedom, God, that there were people who were praying to you, knowing that only you can bring real freedom. And so God, I thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that in the Exodus, we have an incredible example that when we pray, the war is won before the fighting ever begun. So God, I just simply pray today that we would be people of prayer, 
God, that we wouldn't be people who try to shape the world and try to strike out on our own and try to find freedom on our own and try to discover freedom and win freedom for ourselves in our own power, but that we would lean into you and who you are and what you have and what you want for every single one of us. God, I pray that we would find freedom as we look to you, as we spend time in prayer, as we spend time in prayer for the things that we want to see in the world, the things that we want you to do in the world, and the things that we we know we need your leadership and your guidance and your direction in. So God, help us to be people of prayer. Help us to pray today like it's our most desperate day because it is. Help us to pray like our relationship with with you depends on our prayers because it does. And help us to listen today like we absolutely need your direction because without it, we're hopelessly lost and we're desperate for your direction because we are. God, we pray that we would be people of prayer, that we would talk to you and that we would listen for you. Help us to do this, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.